0: Good morning, and welcome to CSIS, to the first annual Washington Humanitarian Forum here at CSIS, and a welcome also to those who are online. Uh, Today's uh, forum is hosted by the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda, with special thanks to our partner USAID. Um, I'm Jay Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President here at CSIS, where I direct our global health work. And I've had the honor of serving as a special advisor, senior advisor, and member of the task force, Uh, co-chaired by Senators Todd Young, Republican of Indiana, and Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey. We're launching the task force uh, report today. And I hope you all have had the opportunity to pick up the report. It's very impressive. The report contains very concrete and, I think, quite compelling recommendations for how U.S. leadership can mitigate the most pressing challenges that we face today in terms of humanitarian access. And policymakers, we have already begun to realize, are beginning to pay attention to these recommendations. The authors and organizers have been quite assiduous at laying the groundwork and pathways for debate up on the Hill within the administration and international organizations and the like. Of course, since Senator Cory Booker's uh, one of our co-chairs, we're all very much hoping we see this surface in the next presidential democratic debate, so you might want to drop that note to them. Um, Today would not be happening um, without the leadership, compassion, and creativity of my remarkable colleague and friend, Kimberly Flowers, who heads the food security program both the food security program and the humanitarian agenda here at CSIS and this is really a moment where she truly shines and has really shown what she's capable of Uh, and but most importantly with through her leadership what CSIS and our partners are capable of achieving Um, and we're all in Kimberly's debt, debt she has positioned CSIS to be a lead voice in the humanitarian sphere um, this is not a transitory change or a one-off event. It's something that is reshaping who we are as an institution, uh, and it will live on, and we look forward to seeing all of you again here next year. A special thanks uh, to a friend and colleague, Jake Kurtzer, who did an utter, utterly masterful job in, drawing, in drafting and shepherding uh, this complex enterprise what we have now in the the written report. Uh, The result is powerful, it's comprehensive, it's very well written and laid out. A special thanks also to John Goodrick, who has handled the logistics, the research, and the many, many details that came into play in pulling us all together today. Uh, The interns with the Humanitarian Agenda uh, Program, Emily Mudd and Deanna Woodman, also deserve special thanks, as well as Emily T. Meyer. Uh, from the Ideas Lab, who put the beautiful report together. Um, We'll hear uh, much, I think, about the contributions from uh, Senator Young's staff, especially Sophia Lalani, and Senator Booker's contributions through Matt Johnson. Um, USAID uh, has been a strong and very considerate partner in this enterprise. It's inherently awkward uh, for a U.S. agency to partner with an independent, nonpartisan think tank to take a hard look at how the U.S. government operates in a complex, fluid and innately controversial topic area. Uh, Much to its credit, USAID has been at all points very respectful of our autonomy and has offered, contributed substantial guidance and insights along the way. Our theme for today is Unlocking Humanitarian Access Opportunities for U.S. Leadership. We'll have panel discussions on a range of topics, all featuring excellent speakers on cyber, on Yemen, on Ebola and DRC this morning. You really want to pay attention to the Ebola panel. Um, And in the afternoon, Ukraine, Borno, and Nigeria. Uh, We encourage you to tweet throughout the day, and using the handles and hashtags shown on the screen, Just a few thoughts before I introduce our plenary keynote speaker that I wanna leave with you, thoughts I'd like to leave with you at the outset of this amazing day. Um, This is among the most timely work we've ever done here at CSIS. As we will hear, we live in an increasingly dangerous world overloaded with burgeoning crises in which the scale of abuse and neglect of individuals in acutely vulnerable situations has simply skyrocketed. The numbers that are at peril, the numbers which cannot be reached because of deliberate and malevolent action as well as unintended and other administrative or bureaucratic factors, but those malevolent actions involving perpetrators acting with impunity, the numbers are simply staggering. The demand has peaked in a way we have not seen. And I think it's fair to say we're really not winning at this game despite the, 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 the courageous and sustained efforts by many of the people we'll be hearing from today. We do face a monumental problem that is historic and that imposes a huge human price every day. Leadership has waned in many critical places, particularly U.S. leadership. Norms are cracking. Institutions are overloaded. Accountability is often utterly absent. We cannot give up say it's too hard or turn away, we need to ask, as we have in this report, what can and should be done, where should the leadership be found in this next period. The report has four concrete, calls for four concrete actions. We call for political choice to elevate humanitarian access to its rightful spot among foreign policy and security priorities. We call for a rebalance between humanitarian law, norms and practice, and counterterrorism law, norms and practice two domains, humanitarian and security, that are terribly legitimate but complicated in, in trying to figure out how to uh, walk and chew gum in, in complex situations where both are at play. This is a, I believe, this recommendation is, 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 is an epic recommendation, it's a very big one. Um, it is a big ask of Congress, of the administration, of the UN and other governments. It requires a different risk calculation, a different risk tolerance, uh, and I commend the authors of this report and the task force members who labored over the complexities and sensitivities of this to arrive at the specific uh, concrete recommendations that we see in the report. When we put out the film The New Barbarianism in 2017 that looked at the surge of violence against the health sector across two dozen Wars, active conflicts, we saw this tension played out in time, time and time again, and when, and in most instances, when Bush would come to shove, the Geneva Conventions would be shoved to the side um, in any showdown where the force and play of of counterterrorism policy regimens and practices came into play. These are complex risks of liabilities. There are many complex factors that come into play that are, I think, very fairly and accurately represented in this. It takes courage and a lot of careful thought to tackle this conundrum. As I've said, this is a really big contribution, a big recommendation. It's valuable and compelling and very timely. We also call for better use of data, higher emphasis on ending impunity and achieving accountability, and we call for higher investments in training and technology. So those four areas are a great package. They're an integrated package. We're going to hear right now, we're, I'm going to turn for us to hear from our co-chairs in a video uh, from the co-chairs, Senators Todd Young and Cory Booker. Both sen- Senators send their regrets that they are not here in person today, but I think for our purposes what is most, most important is to recognize that these two Senators were deeply and personally engaged from the onset in designing and shaping this um, task force and the concrete recommendations that, that it contains. They put their names on it. They made the commitment to advance the agenda. In this town, all of those actions are powerful signals, very powerful signals. And again, it's to the credit of Kimberly um, and Jake for making sure that um, we had this leadership, this active and engaged leadership throughout in order to give the power and impact that we need behind these these very um, uh, important recommendations. So we are going to turn to this short video and then I am going to introduce our keynote speaker, Mark Lowcock. I just want to, on the last point, emphasize that we went about this. Task force del- in a deliberate nonpartisan or bipartisan basis, embodied most vividly in these two co chairs. Thank you.
1: Hello, I'm Senator Cory Booker, and I'm Senator Todd Young. Welcome,
2: everyone, to the CSIS Washington Humanitarian Forum. We appreciate everyone's work to host and moderate this important event. We want to thank CSIS and USAID for sponsoring this event and thank all of those participating for your commitment to serving the most vulnerable populations in the world.
1: I'm proud to be a co-chair of this task force with my colleague Senator Booker. He's been a valuable partner as we address humanitarian crises that threaten our global stability.
2: And I've admired uh, Senator Young's leadership, his relentless efforts in this space, uh, and all the things he's done to make a real difference. I'm honored to partner with him now,
1: uh, over the past several months, in fact, to really work on this task force. Back in March, when the humanitarian task force first convened, I noted the importance of United States leadership in confronting the growing number of humanitarian crises facing the world today. At the launch of the task force, Senator Young and I put forth a challenging
2: proposition to the task force members to identify the range of reasons for access denial to call out the institutions, including Congress, the UN and other donors that have not kept pace with the challenges of delivering humanitarian access today and make bold recommendations for improving
1: access. You know, the world we live in is rapidly changing and the US-led humanitarian system has to evolve with the world. I agree wholeheartedly with the recommendation that Congress should reaffirm the importance of respecting international humanitarian law and the importance of upholding our own moral principles when addressing these crises. That is why Senator Young and I introduced a
2: resolution marking the 70th anniversary of the four Geneva Conventions. The resolution expressed concern about significant violations of international humanitarian law on contemporary battlefields and encourages U.S. leadership in ensuring greater respect for
1: international humanitarian law in current conflicts. We were proud to pass this resolution through the Foreign Relations Committee unanimously. The recommendations in the report are a call for each one of us to
2: increase the impact of humanitarian funding in each institution represented here to ultimately reduce human suffering.
1: When enacting legislation, Congress should also look to ensure that global priorities like counterterrorism and saving lives through humanitarian aid work in harmony rather than uh, being at cross purposes.
2: We hope that this forum and the report will re-energize the conversation around how to access the most vulnerable among us and compel those in the humanitarian ecosystem to innovate how we deliver assistance
1: effectively. A humanitarian disaster in one corner of the world can affect all of us. We should harness this information to more effectively deliver humanitarian aid and to identify obstacles in a more timely manner.
2: Thank you again for being here.
0: Thank you. Um, We could not have um, a better individual in a better position to open today's proceedings than Mark Lowcock, uh, Under Secretary General and Emergency Relief Coordinator, head of the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, UN OCHA, since 2017. Um, He has been very generous, Uh, in his uh, giving his time to CSIS uh, in, in, in the recent period since he's taken up these duties. We're very grateful to him for that generosity and that he's found time to be with us today. He brings three decades of humanitarianism and development experience, previously served as the permanent secretary in the UK Department of International Development, has firsthand ex- in that role firsthand experience in humanitarian crises and natural disasters across a spectrum of, of of places: Libya, Syria, Nepal, Philippines. He brings compassion, commitments, leadership, incisive insights, and a commitment to problem solving for problems that oftentimes simply eludes quick solutions. Um, his job is not for the faint of heart or for homebodies. He's Uh, as far as I can tell, in the air um, a lot, if not all the time. All of the really bad news migrates to his desk where he's tasked with reversing the decline of the respect of international humanitarian law, uh, uh, figuring out how to to mitigate proliferating famines and respond to the burgeoning population of refugees and displaced persons. The Secretary General and the UN uh, Security Council rely on him to rally. And coordinate all of the relevant UN agencies, as well as other operate with other donors and NGOs, in roughly 20 crisis zones where he's called upon to lead. And it is Mark that the Secretary General and the Security Council turn to often when they need analysis, guidance, and 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 actionable proposals for things that they need to undertake in a quick and quick fashion. So we're going to hear Mark's prepared remarks um, in a moment, and then Kimberly will join us for a conversation that she will conduct with Mark, and we will leave time in the program to hear from you. So please join me in welcoming Mark Locock.
3: Steve, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I am honored to be here today at the first annual Washington Humanitarian Forum. I am a great admirer and an avid consumer of the excellent analysis produced here at CSIS. And today's report, Denial Delay Diversion, is very much in the mold. And I congratulate the task force, led so ably by Kimberly Flowers, for doing such a fantastic job. I also want to endorse what Senators uh, Young and Booker have just said about why access to people in need must remain a core humanitarian, political and security imperative. Thank you also to USAID, both for its support for today's event and its unfailing leadership in global humanitarian policies and programs, including those of my own organization, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA or OCHA. Um, Why is this report so important? Because Denial, delay and diversion are both the biggest reasons why there are more people now than ever before in need of humanitarian assistance and protection, and why it's harder than it used to be to meet those people's needs. As the task force's report clearly spells out, principled humanitarian action is under attack across the world. Yes, but why is that the case? Two big things, in my assessment, have happened. First, we've seen the emergence of globally interconnected terrorist groups who simply do not accept the norms and standards the rest of the world has adopted over the last 200 years, but especially in the wake of the Second World War. And second, largely as a result of the current geopolitical reality, Problems that 20 years ago would not have been allowed to arise or would have been contained and then solved faster are getting worse and dragging on. States and others that once would have feared the repercussions of denying humanitarian access now feel they can act with impunity. The increase in denial of humanitarian access is therefore a symptom of the fact that the world has a major accountability problem, and I will talk more about that later. So, denial, delay, and diversion have, as the report insightfully observes, shifted from being an unintended consequence of conflict to a weapon of war used for political or military gain. The report is full of examples of that, the use of siege and starvation in Syria, garrison towns in northeast Nigeria, humanitarian extortion in South Sudan, bureaucratic blockages in Yemen and so on. Now the report includes some important recommendations for how United States leadership can mitigate these challenges. You are in a uniquely powerful position to make respect for international humanitarian law and principled humanitarian action a priority, as the report proposes. You have a strong tradition as a champion of humanitarian action and of human rights. You are by far the largest contributor of funding to humanitarian appeals around the world, though I am glad to say that your share of the burden is falling a little as we become a bit more successful in persuading others to do more. Your combined military, diplomatic, and economic power and your global presence, your global reach and influence, together with your policymaking capacity, still allow you to set the agenda. And you've given birth to many of the world's leading and most respected NGOs, like those here today, which are on the front lines of response and delivering assistance. Unlocking access and defeating denial, delay, and diversion is at the core of my and OCHA's mandate. So what does that involve? Well, it includes describing what's happening. It includes advocating for solutions in the Security Council, Powerful Capitals, and elsewhere. It includes negotiating access with authorities and armed actors. It includes collecting data on access constraints. And it includes helping humanitarian organizations to take a strategic and coordinated approach to access. Today, I want to comment on the four areas in which the task force is making recommendations. First, the proposition to elevate humanitarian interest and make access a foreign policy priority. I obviously think that would be a good idea. President Reagan famously described America as a shining city on a hill. For the millions of people across the world who are denied access to the most basic life-saving assistance, the US will always be a country they look to for help. Pushing for better humanitarian access is, though, not only morally the right thing to do, it can also make us all safer, more secure, and more prosperous. My colleague and good friend, Governor David Beasley, who's now the head of the UN's World Food Programme, recently observed that his agency was the first line of defense and offense against Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, and ISIS. David tells a story of a woman he met who said her husband joined a terrorist organization because there was no food. If humanitarian agencies can reach people in need, we can educate children, giving them a better chance of making a living as an adult, and arguably making them less susceptible to radicalization in future. Humanitarian agencies can stop disease outbreaks and prevent them from spreading across borders if we can reach people, treat them, and give them the necessary drugs. I think the report has some good practical ideas for how to ensure that humanitarian access concerns are integrated into national security policy making. Ensuring coherence between military, diplomatic and humanitarian actors within the work of government is critical. Second, the report calls for policymakers to strike a new risk balance between national security and humanitarian interests, including in counterterrorism regulations. We all agree on the need to deal with terrorism and that sometimes that will require military action. But there are some buts. First, the need to deal with terrorists does not absolve anyone of their wider responsibilities. Look at what's going on in Idlib, in northwest Syria. It is not acceptable to obliterate millions of civilians, many of them children, under the guise of dealing with a few thousand extremist supporters of Al-Qaeda and associated groups. Second, it's now clear that some of the financial measures contemplated to deal with terrorist financing have unintended and damaging consequences for humanitarian action without materially contributing to counterterrorism objectives. The recent debate over whether to add al-Shabaab to the Security Council's list of prescribed organizations is a case in point. I can't find a top quality military or security analyst who thinks that would help the fight against terror but it was clear to everyone that it would have undermined a humanitarian operation on which millions of people rely. The Security Council's decision not to go down that path was therefore an important one. But that approach needs to be generalized, and I note the report calls for Congress to establish a humanitarian exemption from CT legislation for activities that are consistent with principled humanitarian action indeed citing EU and other legislation as models. The report's third set of recommendations are about harnessing the power of data to systematically monitor and document access constraints and increase the costs of access denial. I couldn't agree with you more on the need to develop a robust evidence base to better understand access problems and solutions. My office currently monitors and reports on access constraints, as Steve mentioned, in 20 crisis countries. And we use that analysis to underpin our negotiation and our advocacy. We've rolled out new methodology in South Sudan, Mali, Iraq, and Syria, not only to identify access restrictions, but also to help us better understand their impact on needs and on humanitarian operations and that work will help us take better informed decisions. I want, by the way, to thank USAID for their support on this, both in funding OCHA's access activities and in promoting this work with other donors and humanitarian partners. Fourth, the report calls for training for humanitarian staff and donors and new technologies to overcome access constraints. I agree on the potential for new technology, whether it's IT, mobile money, monitoring drones, new health products, or a host of other options. But I wanted to make a point about the importance of efforts governments and aid agencies have made in recent years to expand training of militaries, both state and non-state, in international humanitarian law. These efforts work best when they show how the laws relate to local norms and values and widely accepted standards of behaviour. And when they're followed up with programmes to integrate international humanitarian law into military doctrine, standard operating procedures and codes of conduct, which can have a self-disciplining effect, the ICRC has many lessons to share from their work in this area. Such training and policies and frameworks must explicitly address measures to prevent the use of sexual violence, especially against women and girls. If we want such efforts to work, we have to show why complying with the law is in the armed group's own interests, by highlighting the costs of violations, but also the potential loss of strategic gains. The Norwegian Refugee Council, and I think my distinguished predecessor, Jan Egeland, who is now the head of the NRC, uh, will be here later in the day, has launched a first online training course on humanitarian access, and it's a very useful tool for everyone in the humanitarian community. And finally, I said I would return to the question of accountability. In the 1990s and the early 2000s, there were signs that the international community was making some progress on accountability. The establishment of the International Criminal Court and the emergence of the Responsibility to Protect concept in the UN gave many of us hope. Although the impunity we see in the world today is certainly disheartening, we still have to invest energy and resources into accountability tools and mechanisms. Because one day, justice will come to the perpetrators of the horrific crimes we see around the world. We continue to need to boost national capacity to carry out impartial investigations into allegations of violations. At the global level, the Security Council can play an important role, as it's demonstrated, for example, by the International Criminal Tribunals for Yugoslavia and Rwanda. So can intergovernmental institutions like the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which brought us one step closer towards identifying perpetrators of chemical weapons attacks. Let me leave you with one last point. Senators Booker and Young say in their letter opening the report, We believe that the role of governments is first and foremost to protect their people. That is clearly right. And the converse is also true, that those most able to protect people are governments, not NGOs or the media or the Red Cross or the UN. So let's make sure that governments are never allowed to forget their responsibilities and that they have the capacities to live up to them. Thank you very much.
4: I have to, I think, start with, your, with the point about governments, right, because so, you ended on that note. And I, of course, immediately think of Venezuela and how do we help countries not forget that responsibility, particularly in today's day when you have conflicts or you have governments who want to deny there's even challenges, much less let aid into the country. So talk to us a little bit about um, how you handle that in the field, you and your staff, in terms of dealing with governments who don't take that responsibility seriously.
3: Um, Well, in in almost all circumstances, you, you know, uh, everybody, in, especially the UN, because the UN is a, is a member states organization, has to um, operate um, with the, acquies- the acquiescence of governments. Mm-hmm. Um, there are very rare exceptions. The cross-border operation that we run at the moment from um, uh, Turkey and Iraq into parts of Syria, it does not have the acquiescence or enjoyment of the government of Syria. But the Security Council has taken decisions that we should do that nonetheless. But that, those are very rare circumstances. Um, and the, you know, the humanitarian community consistently finds itself um, caught in the middle of the, on the one hand, the rock that we can only do things which whoever's in authority or has power in the places we're talking about will allow us to do and the hard place that, um, because the whole system is voluntarily funded, we can only do things that people will give us money to do. Now, in the case of Venezuela, um, uh, uh, you know, six, eight months ago, there was um, not a recognition in, um, by the authorities of Venezuela that there was a humanitarian crisis, a problem. And, and I think that has, Um, change. They they recognize clearly there is a humanitarian problem now and my office um, published last month um, the first um, fuller humanitarian response plan we've been able to um, prepare and in doing that we obviously had to have discussions with the um, government of Venezuela we obviously also want to have discussions with um, Mr. Guido and um, his colleagues and we obviously need to have discussions with a variety of other stakeholders and um, you know the, the conclusion we've come to which we set out in the report is that um, there are continuing access constraints and operating constraints. We would like there to be more international NGOs able to register, for example. We um, would like the customs procedures to be more straightforward. We would like better access for UN agencies and NGOs to fuel. We would like less um, interference from different sorts of um, people setting up checkpoints around the country. But we also have reached the conclusion that, that those things collectively um, um, can be overcome. And the binding constraint for um, operations in Venezuela right now is actually the finance. Um, You know, the UN could be providing more drugs and immunizing more kids and keeping more people with HIV on their antiretrovirals, together with the NGOs and the Red Cross, if there was more money. So that is an illustration, if you like, of the the thing we see (laughs) everywhere we go that you need to get the acquiescence from those who have power and control, but you then need to keep the confidence of people whose resources you're trying to raise.
4: Yeah. In your opening remarks, thank you for for really going through all of our points in our report, and no surprise, especially our high-level points that you agree with. Um, Was there anything you disagreed in the report, and is there any recommendation that you think should have included that we didn't include?
3: I didn't find much I disagreed with. Um, well, that's not interesting. I know, uh, <laughs> but I, I think the um, I think what you've set out is a first set of things that, um, mm-hmm. if they all happen, would move us forward materially. But the. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's two sorts of problems. There's problems that, um, like the, the problem that's arisen from unintended consequences of um, camp terrorism legislation, mm-hmm. yeah. which are um, relatively tractable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good idea to focus a large effort on those, those things which there's a good chance of making progress with. Mm-hmm. But there, then there's a different category of problems, which are actually much bigger. Which are to do with the behaviour of various parties, which which generate, um, you know, all the cases of denial, delay, and diversion, and that you know involves um, finding some way for ISIS or Boko Haram or whoever it is to behave in a different way. Now. The, if they were to do that, their benefits would be much higher than the benefits that we would get from improving the way the CT legislation works. But the truth is that's a much harder problem to solve. Yeah. So I think it's a good idea to work hard at those problems where we're going to make some progress um, and um, not to pretend they're the biggest problems, but they are the ones that we can um, generate some progress on.
4: Yeah. One more question before I turn to the audience. Um, you know next week is unga the u.n general assembly so i'm curious um what you're hopeful for in terms of what's going to actually rise to the top of priorities of unga discussions um and then also if you can talk a little bit about you know your role in terms of of course you have to play a coordination role but how that structure of the u.n and the u.n security council and member states how that how that helps or hurts what you try to do. So talk about Ange next week, and then a little bit about being stuck in the bureaucratic and political system that you are. <laughs>
3: um, well, let me take the second, second thing first. You know, the, the world in its wisdom has decided to create an agency for food, and an agency for refugees, and an agency for children, and um, you know, all the other agencies, and the wonderful NGOs, and the, the Red Cross. And the, the truth is, there is not a single problem that those agencies are trying to deal with that any one of them can deal with on their own. So there has to be a coordinator. Mm -hmm. And that's why in 1991, Mm -hmm. the the General Assembly passed a resolution which established the role I'm now in, in in which I'm the the lucky 13th holder of this (laughs) um, position. And, um, you know, the. The most important and um, powerful unit of organization in human society is the nation state. And the nation states come together in the United Nations. And um, the one thing that would be more frustrating than (laughs) all the frustrations we have as member states debate with each other and argue about how to deal with problems um, in the United Nations would be not having a forum in which the member states mm. could meet together and argue with each other. So, um, you know, it, it is um, if you you know agree to do one of these jobs, you are buying into the construct, and it's mm-hmm. not um, a, it's not relevant or meaningful or helpful to complain about um, all that. The, Responsibility is to operate within the framework and do the best you can within the framework. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that means saying things that are not um, popular with everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, It always means providing the best evidence and analysis um, and advice you can. Um, It it means trying to act in a responsible way, but it it crucially means living up to the values and the principles that the founders of the United Nations in 1946 Mm -hmm. set out. um, if you do all those things, then sometimes what you'll find is the member states can take decisions which will improve things, and sometimes you'll find it takes longer to do that. Yeah. So that's basically the mindset I try to um, bring to this with my colleagues.
4: That's nice and positive.
3: <laughs> um, now, uh, next week um, I think will be a big week on climate change. That's yeah. certainly what we, um, what we hope, and by the way, you know, the, as, as Steve said in his opening remarks, um, we have a bit of a paradox. For most people on the planet, um, the chance of having a decent life now is better than it ever has been in the whole of 150,000 years of human history. But if you're in the unlucky, one or two unlucky categories, including the unlucky category of the 140 million people who I'm worried about every day, that's not true. And so we've got the highest ever caseload of people needing um, humanitarian assistance. And the largest um, bill... Mm-hmm. Um, to meet those needs. So there's a paradox there. Yeah. Um, and I do hope that next week we will uh, the, the, reason, the reason why we've got the highest level of caseload is, is driven by three things. Firstly, conflict okay. which is the biggest cause of suffering. Secondly, climate change uh-huh. coming, bringing me back to my climate change point, why I'm glad that climate change is going to be prominent next week. If the world deals better with that I'll have less to do. Or my, Successor successors will have less mm-hmm. to do. And thirdly, we have this, these chronic cases like in the Sahel, where there's um, drivers of problems: um, growing populations, um, environmental degradation, changes in climate, which means that traditional lifestyles aren't viable in the way they used to be, and that creating conflict and displacement and And the the world is not dealing with the underlying drivers of those problems. We're just dealing with the symptoms. Dealing with the symptoms and not the drivers is a surefire recipe for failure. So for those three sorts of reasons, there's growing humanitarian caseload. And I hope that we will also get a bit of attention and progress on the next things that need to happen. Um, For example, to avoid a massive conflagration in Idlib, in Northwest Syria. We have important meetings on that. To move forward. the situation in Yemen,
5: yeah. to
3: deal with the, uh, make sure we can bring the Ebola outbreak under control, mm-hmm. um, to um, try and contain a deteriorating situation in Afghanistan. On all of those things, we will have important meetings. We'll also have some meetings on one or two places where there's a chance to move forward. And I mm. think, I, partic- I particularly want to encourage people to pay attention to the opportunity in Sudan. Mm. I've been working uh, for more than 30 years on, on Sudan, and I think that now is the best chance we've had for a generation to oh. enable Sudan to escape from the trap it's been in. No. But unless there's enough support for, for the Prime Minister, who everybody, I think, has a high regard for, um, there is a serious risk that um, the expectations of the, of the people for a better future will not be met at a fast enough rate. Yeah. And the US does have a very important role to play here because um, one of the things they need to do is take the actions necessary to get off the state sponsor of terrorism list, because right. that's the way to unlock access to you know, normalization of their relations with the um, IFIs, where again, the, the US has a, the most important role, candidly. Yeah. So I hope people will um, think carefully about how best to support and incentivize the new authorities in Sudan to give the country a chance, first time in a generation, to escape mm-hmm. from the trap it's been in.
4: That's great. Let's turn to the audience, and I just wanna invite, you know, I know we have reserved seating up here, but um, those can be taken, so anyone who wants to come in, please do, feel free to sit up to the front. We're, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm only gonna do one round of questions, so I'll take a couple. Um, let's come up to the very front here. Go ahead and come up to the front with a microphone, and we'll go right here first. Oh, thanks, Hannah. And if you can just keep it brief and please uh, be sure to give your name and organization.
0: I'm a Peter Humphrey, an intelligence analyst and a former diplomat. It seems to me the biggest no-brainer out there right now is the uh, Russian bombing of hospitals. And I want to understand why I'm hearing nothing but crickets. Uh, it, seems, it seems to me that, that this is the easiest thing to get an international consensus. 95 percent of humanity to simply not deal with russia until they stop bombing hospitals um, is it that the russian people don't know what their government is doing on their behalf is that something the un should maybe take the lead on
4: great thanks we'll take a few more questions let's take one from the woman in the glasses right here can you pass it down um, right behind there do you see her the woman with the glasses can you raise your hand again yep there we go thank you
6: Hi, Abby Brule with Concern Worldwide. Um, I just have a question going back to the issue of accountability, Um, you know, the UN Security Council has passed so many resolutions, most recently 2286, um, tw- on the protection of healthcare, uh, or not bombing, healthcare facilities and protection of um, personnel in conflict as well as 2417 on conflict and hunger. And it's just wondering how do we get uh, the Security Council to actually use these tools and, and have them have have teeth and not have them be something that sits On a shelf and you know have them just patting themselves on the back as a as a moment in time and then we move on so how do we actually make them useful tools
4: great i'm going to stand up because i can't see if we have any questions on this side of the audience let's do the young man in the back yeah you with your hand you got it thanks this will be our last question
0: hi um thank you matthew from partners for development um i see that um, humanitarian uh, operation would work best, most effectively in uh, you know, coupled with international development effort. But the fact is that um, currently, like the political climate has allowed uh, leading nations and countries like the United States or the UK or Italy, France, Germany to regrets from compacts and you know agreements that would help further sustainable development. So, what do you think, us as you know people who's working in this? Um, space
5: can do to, in order to prevent that from further happening. Thank you. I'm
4: not sure if I understand. Can you repeat it one more time? Are you asking how do we support sustainable development or the, can you ask? The agreement. The agreements?
0: Yes, uh, supporting the sustainable development in this uh, political climate of uh, regressing uh, international um, cooperation.
4: Okay, got it, great.
3: Um, great, thank you. So on Peter's question, I mean, I've, I've spoken a lot about what's been happening since the end of April um, in Idlib. And um, as you know, the Secretary General has set up a board of inquiry to investigate, um, for example, what's happened to the system where my office provides the coordinates to all the parties of hospitals and other civilian objects, and why, why have they still been attacked, and then what's happened to facilities which, which um, have been damaged or destroyed, um, the facilities which have been supported by the UN. So the Board of Inquiry um, has been established and will um, is up and running and will um, do its work. The, I understand the Security Council will be voting today on a um, humanitarian um, resolution in respect of um, Idlib. Obviously um, I would like um, international humanitarian law to be fully subscribe with. I mean, the point I was making about, um, um, yes, I agree we have to deal with terrorists, but um, it's not acceptable to have three million innocent civilians as the casualties of that. That was obviously, I'm talking about Idlib there. I mean, it's the thing I'm most, um, most worried about at the moment of all the problems we're dealing with. Um, I think you need to direct your question to um, people in in the Russian Federation uh, I'm not, it's not up to me to explain why it is um, they um, are um, uh, you know, take the view they do um, the Russian Federation ambassador gave a press briefing on Monday um, in New York where he reiterated um, their commitment to international humanitarian law and um, set out their side of the case and I think that Um, this is something that needs to be debated and resolved by member states in the Security Council. The the staff of the UN, people like me, our job is to serve up information and advice, but states, states have the responsibility to comply with um, the laws they've all sent up to. That was really the point I was trying to emphasize, my very last point. That's the the way states behave is is, is the most important thing. Um, I mean, the, Abby's question is a related question, really. Why do member states pass resolutions in the Security Council and then not comply with them? And I think that's a very good question. And we repeatedly um, update the member states on what has happened in the light of their um, resolutions. I think it's better to have the resolution than not to have it. But I think it, you know, the, the, Security Council needs to members of the Council need to think carefully about the um, impact of consistent non-compliance with things they've agreed. Over time, I think they need to worry about um, lack of, of of following up on what they've said they would do. That's something they need to to be careful about. Um, I mean, on Matthew's question, um, the. The solution to all the problems that I'm trying to deal with is peace and development. The good news is, during the course of my lifetime, um, and I'm 57, so I'm old but not that old, um, (laughs) nearly 100 countries have seen dramatic improvements in the lives and opportunities of their people. And there's 30 or 40 countries who haven't seen the benefits of that. So if those 100 countries can escape Mm -hmm. and can see some progress and can can be in a position where life is getting a little bit better for most of their citizens, there's actually no reason why the remaining countries can't do the same. We're we're clearly in a bad period now, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason why um, with effort and determination and um, collective will we have to stay in this bad position for the next 50 years.
4: It's a good positive note to end on. Mm-hmm. Mark, thank you. Thank you for being here to kick off our first, what we hope of many, Washington humanitarian forums. Thank you for your lifetime of leadership and and service in this in the humanitarian space. We really appreciate you being back at CSIS. Let's give Mark a round of applause. Um, Great question.
3: I'm a Very well. Right? good question. Thank you. Thank you so much. A nice time-
4: ...that we had Senator Booker and Senator Young um, on this, but I'll tell you, for the, for the task force members, we really created what I call my dream team of all the people I could ever wish to join us on this journey, and when we asked them if they wanted to um, be a part of this, within a day, they all said yes. I was expecting a much smaller task force. Instead, we had 22 amazing people um, to really inspire and guide us on this. Um, and Jake, who's at the back, you know, who we've already credited for this great report, can tell you of the thousands of edits and comments that helped shape this great work that we have, that we're launching today. So I think to start, um, I'm gonna be really quick because we've gotta stick to our time. I'm not gonna do long introductions. Um, but we have Patty. oh, well, I'm sorry, with Patty, I guess, down there. We have Patty from Interaction, <laughs> Paul from John Hopkins, Earthrun from former UN World Food Program, now with Stanford, and then we have Anne, who's former Department of Defense. And I think to start, um, I'll just ask all of you, you know, why did you say yes? You know, whether that's, you know, why you're all incredibly busy. Why was being on this task force important to you? Um, why is this issue something that we should really pay attention to? Paul is the only male on the panel, we will <laughs> let you begin.
7: Thank you. Yes, this is on. Oh, when you and Steve asked me, I didn't realize I had a choice. <laughs> that, <so. laughs> um, this is its essential and it's getting worse. Uh, you know, yeah. Previously to my, my life at Hopkins, I was with UNHCR. The access, getting access to the population is becoming more difficult, clearly. Remote management is fraught with accountability issues. Mm-hmm. And so to work with a diverse team of, uh, of esteemed colleagues was was a pleasure that I, of mm-hmm. course, jumped at.
4: Yeah.
8: Others? I mean, I, I think you said it well. I mean, a lot of it was about the, the diverse group that was getting together mm-hmm. to really talk about this issue. I mean, I think all too often with access, especially for operational NGOs, is we talk very much amongst ourselves, we, we talk at country level, but how are we elevating the conversation to really address the, the bigger concerns and constraints that are kind of coming forward? I mean, as, as Senator Booker challenged us, I mean, we have to keep pace with how access is, has changed mm-hmm. and the new challenges that are coming forward, and this gave us an opportunity to do that.
9: Yeah. I just say that during my time as Executive Director of the World Food Program, we lived with these issues on a daily basis and a recognition of the importance of U.S. leadership in uh, driving and ensuring that we have the um, enabling environment that will support the operational um, challenge, the helping us overcome the operational challenges of providing assistance to affected populations during conflict. I I, I just add, I I was delighted that CSIS and Mm -hmm. these two senators wanted to, to uh, use their political capital and your organizational ability to assert what has always been U.S. hegemony since World War II in providing for the dialogue that's necessary to create spaces for this work.
4: Let's dig down on that a little bit more in terms of US leadership. I mean Mark alluded not alluded, but Mark addressed it and, and Steve talked about it too. You know, do any of you feel like I mean of course it's important for the US to remain a global leader. Um, but do you feel that we have stepped back from that? Do you feel that um, you know what what really should US policymakers know about how important it is for the US government to remain a leader on this? And, um, and where are areas where we need to be doing better. Anybody can jump in. I'll call on you if I need be. Yes. Anne?
6: Yeah, look, um, I think this is a really important area for our leadership. It's important not only in terms of upholding IHL, but uh-huh. it's important to our national security interests. And we need to yeah. be able to talk about that. It's important to the way that we build partnerships. It's important to security and stability globally. And as the ex- and referencing the example that Mark Lowcock used earlier, it's important because we don't want to be in a position where the only access to humanitarian assistance for an individual is from a terrorist organization, mm. and that is facilitating recruitment and radicalization. So there are many reasons why this is important to us, and, and we, as Mark Lowcock so ably said, we have, uh, we have a voice on the world stage, and we need to be able to exercise, we need to exercise that voice and that leadership.
8: Yeah. Other thoughts, yeah, Patty? I, mean, I would say that US leadership on humanitarian issues I think ebbs and flows in a number of ways on countries and, and mm-hmm. contexts. Uh, I do think that right now the security partnerships the US has in a number of very large um, countries in crisis is, is critically mm-hmm. important. They, they can play a, an enormous role in ensuring that you know civilians are protected, that assistance is given in an appropriate way, that access is granted to those who are able to provide it. Yeah. And so I think in, in many ways that the role that they play in that is critical, as is their role as as you know, one of, if not the largest donor um, to many countries in, yeah. in terms of the humanitarian agenda. So I think it's it's, it's the issue is really the commingling of when the national security interests align with humanitarian needs and requirements and the fact that we have to have these conversations and this is again why this task force in this report is so critical to, to recognize that there's a lot of conversations we need to be having with different stakeholders than maybe we have in the past yeah. to really identify how do we ensure that the priorities of the populations in need are at the forefront of everyone's thoughts, mm-hmm. um, both from a, a security you know, or political aspect, but also from the humanitarian role. And, and that we as NGOs and, and the UN and other frontline responders, we have a responsibility to ensure that those making these decisions are well aware of the consequences intended it or not, of some of these decisions, and how do we ensure yeah. that we're able to work within these environments effectively. Right. Other thoughts? Paul, sure. yeah.
7: Yeah. Um, I'm very concerned that the U.S. has pulled back as, as a leader, and, um, and when some, when human rights become transactional, as mm-hmm. opposed to mm-hmm. being universal, um, people are other... other countries that in the past would not have done certain things because the US would speak out, and that's mm-hmm. not the case now, mm-hmm. um, it's very concerning. Mm-hmm. And not only is it concerning, but I'm worried that um, other countries have seen the gaps and are now mm-hmm. filling the gaps. And it may not be so easy mm-hmm. for the US to come back as, as being a strong and an important player as it has been. Yeah. Well, I want to disagree with you a bit there. Okay? Good. And that's uh-huh. what
9: Make it interesting. <laughs> <good>. <laughs> um, and the, on that last point, the US comeback because I think you made a point that is important. Our leadership has ebbed and flowed mm. since World War II. This is not a new phenomenon that US steps back. That, uh, and so I think that's, a, there, that there is a, there is always space for US voice. There is a desire for US voice and US leadership. And so the the, the, the opportunity for for um, enabling US leadership and and advocating for US leadership does result in when the US speaks, the world listens. Mm -hmm. And I I I would I would think I would suggest, no I would say that has not changed. And I don't Mm -hmm. see it changing any time in the near future. Mm -hmm. What about the role of Congress? I mean,
4: obviously we had you know bipartisan you know co-chairs on this and, and we had great I see Matt in the audience hi Matt um, between Matt from young's office and, and uh, Sophia from Booker's office really engaged in this we're actually meeting we have a briefing Friday that's tomorrow? yeah, tomorrow morning with congressional <laughs> staff about the report. Um, what, do you, what other things would you want to say to a congressional staffer who's working on this? They have a lot of competing priorities, a lot that they have to deal with. What's the key message there about what they need to know and what actions they need to take? Anything you want to say to staffers, particularly?
8: I think the report outlines that there's a lot of knowledge uh, advancement that needs to, re- to happen. I mean, I think uh-huh. we look at... We look too simplistically a lot of, at a lot of these issues, which are very complex on the ground. So access becomes maybe one thing in their mind, um, which is you know an access to a population or you know a road is cleared or whatever it may be. But as we know, um, and you can read the report to get more information, it is incredibly complex. Yeah. And it's 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 most importantly it's access of populations to services, not our access to them. Right. So how do we actually define that? Um, you know, get a greater understanding, and I don't expect everyone in Congress or every staffer that works in the administration to understand the depth of humanitarian action and, and what access means, but we, they do need to understand that the definitions of, you know, there is a lot that needs to be clarified so that those who are dealing with the complexity can manage it appropriately. And uh, if you have simple understanding and simple definitions, there's an enormous amount of misinterpretation and over-management um, of it by those who do want it more fixed. So example, the inspector, you know, Office of the Inspector General wants a lot of clarity of what that actually means. Yeah. Um, lawyers want a lot of clarity of what that actually means. And if Congress doesn't grant that clarity, they will mm. make it up up themselves. And that is very hard for individuals on the ground to navigate. Um, And and so I I would say that, you know, they don't have to become experts, but a more in-depth understanding of how we need more, you know, clear parameters um, would be very helpful.
4: Yeah. Let's go straight into kind of what, what I think, I forgot what Steve called it, but I think our I think he said EPIC, which is a <laughs> word. I didn't expect that. But the EPIC, or the bold recommendation that we have and that we talked about in the report in regards to that balance between national security and humanitarian principles. And let's start with you. Um, I know you don't even like that word, which is great. Right. So how would you reframe this? Because coming from the defense perspective, how do you look at this issue? How do you think people in your community think about this issue? And how should we frame that?
6: Yeah, right. I think that's very important. And Senator Young uh, talked about aid work and counterterrorism efforts working in harmony, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is a fair paraphrase. Um, harmony may be a goal, <laughs> uh, but you got to have goals. Uh, and I think it's really, it's, 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 in, it's incredibly important to understand in this uh, effort that there have been unintended consequences of the sanctions regimes, the counterterrorism sanctions regimes that have been put in place and uh, uh, expanded since 9-11. They're there for a very important reason and they're a really important tool uh, in our counterterrorism efforts. And we can't forget that. They're put in place against organizations and individuals and entities that are a threat to U.S. persons and Mm -hmm. to U.S. national security. Mm -hmm. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, they've absolutely, in their implementation, has been clearly detailed in this report, um, had these unintended consequences for the delivery of humanitarian assistance. So uh, from my perspective, from my community, what we need to do as a way forward is to build a more regular dialogue across these two communities. There is dialogue. There is dialogue within the U.S. government. There is dialogue between the U.S. government and NGOs. But it's not sufficiently sustained, and as my colleagues have already mentioned, one of the great pleasures of working on this report is an opportunity to work on these issues on a more Sustained uh, on a more sustained basis, without the urgent and the immediate of the inbox inside government coming at us. So, um, so first of all, we need to come together. Uh, secondly, we need to build a little more trust among mm-hmm, the various mm-hmm. communities. A little more understanding of why IHL uh, is important and impeded. In, uh, in so many different situations. Uh, and and on the other hand, and, and an understanding of where our counterterrorism ter- sanctions are so vital to our counterterrorism efforts. And then we need to look for space um, to improve the operation on the ground, for those of you who are working in frontline organizations. Um, in the context of continuing to maintain our our counterterrorism sanctions uh, most effectively. I think an important piece of that for the defense community will be what's talked about also in the report, Um, very specific examples of access denial the data an understanding of where there are very specific problems that we can solve and I um, I think I think it is eminently doable and possible to make some progress in this area if we take this approach as recommended in the report
4: yeah
7: Mm
6: -hmm. other
4: thoughts on the CT regulation area
7: no just the the importance of humanitarian diplomacy and being able to speak yeah. mm-hmm. to all sides. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when groups are, when we're not able to speak to other sides, we get into a situation where we will not have the access, we will not have, therefore not be able to respond, and therefore people's lives. So it's this balance that you're speaking about that's very, very difficult, mm-hmm. but yeah. very important.
8: Yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead. I just, um, you know, I, as everyone here knows, I mean, I just came out of a mission to Afghanistan. and in, it, it's really an incredible complexity of just also the understanding on the ground of what are, what is the regulations, what are the sanctions, who is what, how that may uh, impact their work, and um, we have to find a way to also you know bring more knowledge to bear on on how these different aspects of the counterterrorism regulations how they play out, because I think we all focus heavily on like the one side of it that touches us and. You know, Interaction has been working on a report to, to really outline what are the different aspects, how does counterterrorism come to fruition, so to speak, in, in different regulations and different yeah. policies, procedures, guidance, mm-hmm. and how how they, how, again, it gets back to the interpretation of, of what is requested or required of them or even just being almost self-censoring. Okay. How do I avoid going down this path and so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to pull back. and. So, I mean, I think one of the things for me is, is that we really need to get more comfortable with being uh, uncomfortable with, you know, for example, even just listening to the ERC up here speaking about, um, you know, the rock and the hard place, and the hard place is the funding. Oh, no, the hard place really needs to be the populations we're helping and how far are we going to go and and getting comfortable with the act we're going to identify that there's more people in need than we can access there's more people in need than we can reach there's more people in need who are staying in need because of counterterrorism regulations and our lack of understanding of negotiation or our fear of negotiation or security issues And how do we actually start to have that conversation more boldly and and to say, we recognize you may not be able to uh, afford to pay for this need globally in terms of assistance. Mm -hmm. We recognize that um, a lot, you know, that we don't want to excuse governments from their own responsibilities. But we should not shy away from actually talking about the extent of the challenge that's out there and to try and find solutions that will work with those people in mind beyond, um, I mean again, sorry, as a humanitarian, <laughs> that is the most critical thing. Yeah. I recognize that national security has many interests and, and, and sometimes we are going to uh, be you know, not in alignment on that but that how do we find that space where we can talk openly about those challenges mm-hmm. and try and mm-hmm. find solutions mm-hmm. that are for those people because I do, I do think if we don't find solutions for those people, the national security agenda, whether I agree with it or not in terms of specific, specificities, won't have success in the way that they hope. Oh. That's absolutely right. right. That's right. absolutely.
6: That is absolutely right. There's no question about mm-hmm. it. And make no mistake about it. This is eminently doable, but it's very hard. It's very hard. It's now. very yes. hard. Yes. Uh, if we wouldn't be here, if it wasn't very hard, mm-hmm. right? We yeah. need to go at it, and the report's a good start. And,
9: yeah. and I think it, it, the, it's very hard. Uh, it cannot be overstated, and the importance that the report is is a good start. Yeah. And any conversations with Congress must be sustained. And we need to acknowledge and, and, and have our leaders acknowledge and recognize, uh, justice with the UN Security Council rec- resolution, uh, working with Congress that passing legislation Alone, holding a hearing does not make change. And it requires that sustained conversation, that sustained engagement, that sustained oversight of these hard issues to make the changes that are required.
4: I wanna talk a little bit about solutions, right? And, or just some current events and things. So one is that you know last week in Afghanistan, the Taliban just lifted um, some security uh, regulation requirements uh, um, with uh, ICRC. And it was because of their discrete humanitarian diplomacy on the ground. And so it shows that when agencies on the ground have that opportunity and space to do that work, that there can be success. Um, there's also, of course, and, and I'm going to turn to Patty to speak a bit more to this, but about the recent issues within the UN Security Council related to Kenya and, um, and more security um, things related to Somalia. Can you talk a little bit about that? In particular, we'll re- lay it out for us, but also talk to us how the NGO community responded okay. and how there was some success there.
8: Yeah, I think on the ICRC thing, and I don't know if they're here in the audience, and they are on the task force, I mean, it will be interesting to hear from them more about um, the Taliban lifting uh, the ban, what that might actually mean in terms of playing out, because I'm sure they will have some very clear, I would hope they would have some very clear expectations on what that may Mm -hmm. mean in terms of their own security and safety and and access to the populations. Um, The Security Council resolution that you mentioned um, is 2167, if I remember correctly, yes. Oh okay 76 <laughs> <laughs> Anyway um the uh Kenyan authorities wanted to try and and include al-Shabaab in uh, the Security Council um, uh, restrictions related to, the sanctions related to ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And we uh, were obviously not happy with this. We have a carve out with the U.S. government related to um, working in al-Shabaab areas, and it was hard fought a few years ago um, to try and ensure that we could gain access to populations in need um, during the famine uh, at that time. And there are obviously a lot of warning signs that, you know, this may, of course, come as, again, you know, people uh, affected populations and and famine needs uh, in Somalia may be, you know, another crisis. It's cyclical. It's climate change related. Conflict, of course, is not helping. So how, how do we retain that? And we at Interaction did a lot of work to, one, ensure that the UN was moving forward on this. You know, we wrote to the heads of WFP, to UNICEF, to OCHA, just saying, we really need this to be on your radar. You need to be looking at this issue, you need to be attentive to it. We received feedback from all of them that they were, Um, but then of course civil society has our own role to play and we uh, advocate it very heavily with um, governments, both those on the Security Council and those not, um, just about what this may mean for for our needs um, in terms of accessing populations. And in the end, six of them objected to the resolution, and so it didn't go mm. forward. And so I, I think it is about being really proactive, and I, in many ways, a lesson for interaction is how do we keep our eyes on what's coming, what's moving ahead, what, what countries may be at risk even if they aren't necessarily even being talked about yet in the political halls uh, for additional restrictions and regulations mm-hmm. related to counterterrorism. And so you know, that was a really, for us, a, a, a wake-up call to, we can actually have successes on this. We can get not only carve-outs as we had with the Security Council resolution um, before the summer related to domestic policies being put in place for, for um, counterterrorism, which we did succeed in getting a carve-out for humanitarian assistance, but we also um, can, can, uh, can move forward in blocking what, um, you know, initially in the early days, we thought was a no-winner uh, we thought there was no one who was going to stand against the Kenyan authorities about wanting to move ahead on al-Shabaab uh, having stronger restrictions against it. Uh, we had a lot of conversations with people in Somalia and, and in the region and folks really felt that no one was going to be the one to stand up against it but because of the advocacy across a number of countries including our own, they could stand together. Those countries Mm. could stand together and and send a message. And um, I won't say that I understand what conversations may have happened up in in US UN and and other UN delegations, but it definitely, I'm sure, helped that they weren't um, standing alone and they were able to make that statement without sacrificing or damaging their relationship with Kenya. Mm. Um, And so we need to look at that more. And I I think, you know, on our Afghanistan mission, it was another open conversation we had was, you know, are you aware of these issues coming? Are there restrictions? Are you aware of what's happening in other countries? And if you hear any whispers, reach out, let us know. Don't wait until it's like in your grant agreement or you've been told to do something. But we we need to have these conversations proactively. Um, So I think there are there are wins of a sort that we can have. I think it is a question of how do we ensure that we're doing it in the most constructive and positive way possible in partnership with these organizations? Uh, because you know, I, I, I mentioned the anecdote of this when we first went into one government office here. Um, you know, they were basically like, "So you're pro terrorist?" And, and that's the starting point. You know, uh, no, no, we're not pro. So how you know, if you're yeah. starting at that level, it's almost you've already lost half the. Battle before you even sat down. So, how do we start those conversations mm-hmm. a lot earlier on these countries specific to context mm-hmm. to really get them aware of why we are actually advocating for this? You know, it's not that we're advocating for access to al-Shabaab, it's accessing to the territories where people are affected mm-hmm. under their control. And mm-hmm. how do we you know, make sure mm-hmm. that that narrative is a lot clearer? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to Paul because I, I, it's good to talk about the counterterrorism stuff, but I think data is also really important and often overlooked, both the importance of collecting it, the challenges of collecting it. Talk to us a little bit about um, how we can best measure our effectiveness and how data kind of comes into this whole conversation.
7: Yeah, thank you. Um, it's, it's problematic, and I think it's probably one of our biggest Achilles heel. The further we go in terms of insecurity, the worse the data mm-hmm. are, and um, mostly when you look at the humanitarian response plans, we did um, an analysis of Yemen, Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan, and you look at what they w- what they plan to measure and what they actually measure, and what they never follow. It's not followed upon because they don't choose the correct indicators and in the no. methodologies. But mostly, it ends up being process indicators, and so mm-hmm. we really do not have an idea of effectiveness, uh, and then more importantly about prioritization. It's um, with with making difficult decisions because there aren't there is not enough money, mm-hmm. but we don't have the data and the even the um, mm-hmm. the methods yet to be able to look at how to prioritize. So mm-hmm. one area that we're working on with actually with Gates is to look at existing humanitarian indicators, so not to create new ones because we don't need new mm-hmm. indicators. We have way too many, but to actually try to look at, the um, the level of access to the population mm-hmm. and the level of resources, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then look at, um, so f- when you have access and you have resources, often a population-based survey is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. But as you go further and further out, it's more difficult to do. So what are the methodologies? Can we do what proxy indicators? And could we have some sort of standardization? Mm-hmm. because? Mm-hmm. Um, Sadly it's extremely difficult right now to really know how well we're doing in mm-hmm. these many of these uh, contexts.
10: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Right. Mm-hmm. I want to turn to the Can audience. I just add yes, of course. Go ahead.
9: Important. The, 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 because part of the challenge as you go further out is lack of access to population and lack of access to the, the information. It's not a lack of desire for the collection mm, of the right. data. And that's why I think technology is so important oh, and the uh-huh. investment in additional technology to ensure that we can use new communication vehicles and tools to get access that has not historically been uh, available for not just providing assistance, but for the collection of data and information. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's turn to
4: the audience. Um, We'll probably have time for two rounds, so raise your hand, just like before. Um, Let's come right here in the very front. And same as before, stand, give your name, organization, and keep it brief. Thanks.
5: Uh, Mike McDonald, um, Alliance for Global Resilience and Regeneration. Um, The concern that I have is, can we actually get ahead of some of these problems? and create regenerative communities and societies that will face climate change and the other global challenges that we have. Uh, If you look at uh, just the uh, situation with the Bahamas, uh, people coming to the United States that would routinely come in and are now blocked just Mm -hmm. because they're at their darkest hour, that's an indication of something very wrong. But in addition, um, these societies like Haiti and um, the Bahamas can't really recover in the sense of of what we've been thinking of recovery, given what's coming. So we need a new paradigm that's more focused on resilience and regeneration. We don't have many communities and societies that are really building toward that. And I'm just wondering if that has a place in this discourse, and if it may mean a paradigm shift in humanitarian affairs.
4: Great. Thank you, Mike. Other questions? Yeah, right in the back there.
10: Thanks.
5: Um, Oliver Quast, Social Impact Partners. I wanted to um, ask about the use of data. You were saying that it's used to measure efficiency. But if we have good, good, reliable third-party data, this data can also unlock um, innovative financial mechanisms. So we don't need to rely on donations only, but we can think of impact bonds, insurance, Mm -hmm. cat bonds. And I wonder what your take is? on the use of data for these purposes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you.
4: Great. Let's go ahead and come right here to the front.
10: Uh, My name is Deirdre Lupin. I've worked previously on the staffs of UNICEF, the World Bank, um, USAID, and the private sector. And I'm currently a consultant. Uh, You raised the issue of the engagement with the population as a critical success factor in humanitarian assistance. And you've also talked about the ambiguity, you might say, of the objectives, which are humanitarian assistance and also counterterrorism in many government policies. Um, one of the often neglected reservoirs of expertise in cha- uh, meeting these challenges is anthropology. It's the anthropologists who can really go into the community, talk to people. They understand the modes of communication, the methods of thought, etc. cetera. Um, and yet, when the anthropologists are approached, they sometimes recoil at what they see is this ambiguity of objectives in uh, government policy or international policy. And I'm wondering if this ever entered into your discussions, Um, the uh, human uh, social and cultural behavior effort that was made by the military, for example, early on in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on. Um, This has posed really a block to access to what I think is one of the most important sources of knowledge that we have available. And I w- was wondering if you had considered this at all while you were working on your report.
4: Great. Thanks. We're going to take a few more and then answer all of them right here in the very front. You had a question. Yeah. Right here in the very front. Thank you.
5: Hi. My name is Agron with International Advisory Products and Systems. So. I was just wondering, access may not necessarily lead to good and effective programming. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is
5: that we are doing to rethink the partnership that we have with implementing partner, giving them flexibility to the onset while securing the access? They think about a
3: good and impactful programming, and what is that we are doing to use the data at that phase to inform our continuum in delivering services rather than one-time access? Thank you.
4: Very good point. Right here.
11: Hi, my name is Havali. I run a news organization that reports about humanitarian crises called The New Humanitarian. Um, <clears throat> I have two questions. The first is the data. I've been a bit surprised at the focus on data. Um, Mark talked a little bit about the data that OCHA already collects on access uh, blockages. But more importantly, um, I am struggling to see how more evidence is going to solve the problem. I'm not sure that the problem is that Uh, We don't know that access blockages are happening in a culture of impunity um, and kind of a lack of interest in respecting IHL. What difference does presenting the data make? And my second is linked a little bit to this question, which is around um, uh, localization. So in the push within the humanitarian sector to devolve um, power and agency to local aid workers and aid organizations, um, how does that gel with this? Push for access is. Are we talking, and and is most of the research around blockages against international aid organizations, and does working um, increasingly with local partners kind of solve part of the problem? Great, thanks. Thanks.
4: Yeah. She'll also be a speaker today on a great. Uh, panel, all-woman panel, we have on the role of journalism in the afternoon. Um, Let's go ahead and and turn. There was a lot of data, so let's start with you, Paul. Um, That surprised me. I didn't think a lot of questions would be on data, so I'm sure you're pleased. Why don't you start and um, answer any questions you wish of those, um, and then we'll come down the line. Okay. Okay.
7: Um, So one of the the issues, I think I I missed your name, but you were talking about impact bonds and and other areas. Very, Mm -hmm. very important. I was just talking to uh, Lisa from OCHA specifically on that. It is easier, if I could use the words, to measure parametric indices for bonds for natural disasters, for example. You can clearly measure rainfall. You can clearly uh, measure food prices. Now there are a lot of uh, bonds and insurance for epidemics. Again, it's measurable. What we were talking about is the problem of, in conflict, how can you, the predictability of actually looking at displacement, mm-hmm. um, and a while back we wrote a white paper for the World Bank looking at some of these issues, and my conclusion at least is that it's going to be much more difficult to have uh, some sort of bonds pre um, t- with, with clearly parametric indices to be able to measure objectively um, when a crisis occurs, can money come in through the bonds? I think it's going to be very difficult. It'll also be um, extremely risky, and therefore, the interest rates on those bonds will be very high. So I, I think that's not possible. Conversely, though, I think there's a lot that we can do in the protracted settings in these situations, um, particularly one of the areas that I think is, it would be very interesting would be to looking, look at, uh, in terms of sustainability, looking at health insurance and working with displaced populations, whether they be IDPs or whether they be refugees, um, as opposed to doing parallel services, Mm -hmm. um, looking when countries themselves, and more and more countries are having national health uh, systems, can we integrate refugees and IDPs into these systems? If they had livelihoods, Mm -hmm. they could pay. Mm -hmm. And UNHCR, UNICEF, WHO wouldn't put in their money into parallel systems, but rather into the existing systems, increasing a risk pool and therefore hopefully helping the host communities and other communities. Um, Maybe two other brief things on on data. Um, I agree that one of the areas that we have been looking at is measuring who we are reaching, but not the quality of services. And I think measuring quality and trying to put in quality indicators, so we're looking at both right now, and it's interesting because there is not an agreed-upon standardization of how to look at quality it's and it's a it's a major problem but I think we we need to address because even if you did have access um, and or you're working with the local people who have access if you give very bad services that's not going to be helpful um, and then finally in terms of uh, local in terms of measuring certain evidence such as IHL or Um, you can measure all the abuses that you you want, but if the Security Council um, is dysfunctional, which it is, and therefore um, things are not going to be moving ahead. I'm an academic now, so I'm I'm no longer doing it. It feels so good to be able to speak my mind. Um, So it's concerning, but I think it's still very important to be able to document. I mean, it's incredibly frustrating to be able to document the amount of hospitals in Syria and Yemen and the healthcare workers that are deliberately being um, attacked, yet there's, there's no accountability, it's continuing on. I don't think that we should go away from not documenting it, because I think, as Mark said, for the future, it may be useful, but mm-hmm. it's, um, the evidence is not going to change the political will, which right now mm-hmm. is, is not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, just sticking with data then for a second, I, I think uh, there's a lot on data that we still need to improve. Um, and, and One of the challenges is that everybody still thinks that their data is the most important data. So <laughs> that, that is a, a critical challenge that I, I really hope one day we'll, we'll work out um, and find a way to trust each other a bit more with that information so that we actually, when we're accessing populations for data, we, we are collecting the right data and not over collecting. Um, information we don't need or that we're not going to be able to use or that creates a lot of false expectations um, from from populations which you know if you're in the worst place you've ever been as a family and suddenly someone is giving you false hope and promise and um, it all just happens to be for a fancy infographic back in Geneva I I can't imagine the the harm that's doing um, to individuals so we definitely need to get better about that and we need to really challenge ourselves more about who is this data for Mm -hmm. I think too often the data is to feed the system and not to feed the people, and mm-hmm. so we need to, we need mm-hmm. to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on data as well, though we, we have a lot of privacy issues to work out with. Still, we we mm-hmm. we have uh, technology is wonderful and it's great and it's going to help us get a lot more information. But it also comes with great responsibilities mm-hmm. um, on on protection of information and not to allow abuses um, by by those who may use that data in that way. So th- there's a lot of us. There's a lot for us still to work out. Um, But I agree, data for data's sake um, is harmful, and we need to figure out uh, how to improve on that. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot we already know. Um, But I am always interested how many meetings we go to and we're told, can you give us more evidence that this is happening? I, I think sometimes that's become a bit of a catchphrase for I actually don't intend to do anything on this, but please go back and get me some more information. So, <laughs> um, so I, I, we have to figure out how to, how to move beyond that and have more honest conversations. Um, related to recovering resilience, uh, yes, of course, we need to do more on this. I think we need to uh, really challenge those countries where humanitarian has stayed on the, the, the real far um, left, so to speak, of, of a, a spectrum towards development. Um, you know, we, we have places where we're not doing enough to help communities become more resilient, to, to look at recovery programs, to reach toward development. I would uh, conversely say that development actors have not reached out far enough into um, the the, com- the uh, hard to reach uh, fragile areas due to their own reasons, uh, often, you know, simplistic reason is sometimes their program was designed five years ago and this change has happened and they're not necessarily going to be able to adapt to it. So there's a lot we need to do to reach that gap and that, that. Uh, uh, but I think we need to be, For me, we need to move beyond words. There's a lot of conversation around the nexus, Mm -hmm. yet on the various country visits I have, no one can actually define what it looks like in reality or how it would work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we need to move beyond it being a good idea and actually talk about who does it. And by that, I don't mean just implementers. I mean who's gonna fund it? Who's gonna become creative and allow for the funding for it? Because it's really easy to blame the implementers that they're not doing enough on this. Guess what, if they don't have the funding to do it, it's not going to happen and so you know the donors uh need to accept some responsibility that their own siloing has has left this population In the lurch as much as um, you know individual humanitarian development programming has has done so
4: and if I can just add it also needs longer term and more flexible funding Mm -hmm, one-year funding is not going to cut it and you've got to have adaptive management to Mm -hmm. shift gears when needed we
8: we Mm -hmm. have to be a lot more flexible and then I think implementers need to be more open to to exploring those programs Mm -hmm. as well if Mm -hmm. that funding becomes available Mm -hmm. Um, in in terms of it, programs being more impactful, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I would hope no one would disagree that we need to get a lot better about that. I, this gets back to my earlier comment, though, that too often we're setting the programming based on the funding available. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the funding available is for, uh, you know, truck and chuck, unfortunately, that's what happens, even if everyone in the room knows that that's not the right program. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it comes down to it. We need to have a lot more honest conversations about that and really challenge ourselves about how to get there. Um, Are we gonna reach less people in an impactful way and leave others completely unassisted? I mean, this is the, you know, these are the Sophie's choices that humanitarians are making every day on the ground. So while I agree that we need to be more impactful, I do think we need to recognize that the root causes of why we're not is not necessarily because of a lack of interest or willingness or experience or education or knowledge of the humanitarians to do so. I think it really ties to our system and how it was defined and designed, and we have not yet caught up with our aspirations in funding and, and in flexibility, and so we need, we need to look at that. Um, I also think we need more static presence. When we talk about access, you want to be impactful? You have to get to a place more than once a week, more than once a month. You mm-hmm. have to have a presence on the ground, and so that's where access does have a huge you know, role to play in, in how we look at impact. Um, I just want to touch on, on the localization. I, I agree, um, we know we're talking a lot about uh, moving power and agency to national actors and, and how do we get there, but as, as with other things, we're not really talking about some of the root causes of why we're not necessarily moving there. Part of it is partnerships. We need to improve at how we work in partnership. We need to explore it. Part of it is also just that we, uh, funding mechanisms, prefer to go through international actors. And um, you know, how are we going to challenge that? How are we going to explore that better to, mm-hmm. to move forward? Counterterrorism regulations are a large part why you know, some donors won't go directly to national actors. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's part of the challenge if we want to have better access. Um, and I, I don't subscribe to the, the, that, that, national actors necessarily have better impact or programming than internationals. I think sometimes it comes down to scale, sometimes it comes down to access to populations. sometimes it comes down to the staff you have on the ground. There's a lot of factors there. Um, But we should be looking for those who have the most ability to do the best work with those populations, having the greatest programming and access with them, designed with them. And we also need to be more attentive in our partnerships to risk mitigation versus risk transference. Uh, A huge issue we still have, everyone, of course, pointing the finger at why they've done it in a certain way, but bottom line, we all need to start looking at ourselves and what have we done to help mitigate the risk that we're passing on to partners or that we're accepting Um, from others and then passing on to partners and again I think um, we are very good as a community at pointing the finger at everyone else and we need to get a lot better at what are we doing to help move this agenda forward, what are we doing to help the conversation. I'm going to leave the anthropology question aside for the moment I think the simple answer is I don't recall us actually Mm -hmm. discussing it in the task force. I do know though that a lot of um, organizations are exploring how to be better about understanding communities Mm while anthropologists are not necessarily on on the payroll for a lot of organizations i think in some contexts they are um, especially i I think probably for ebola it was looked at Mm -hmm. in terms of bringing them in how do you have that real strong culture change but i i think you know the, the shortcut answer is we rely often on our national staff and national actors on the ground to guide us and advise us and i know that that there's faults in that because we are not always necessarily getting the populations themselves, we may be getting an educated elite from a capital or whatever, and, and I do think though there's a lot more conversation on that than there was when I started my career. So I, I think we are getting more aware of it, whether we've actually found the, the expertise we need on staff, um, maybe a work in progress for some. Mm-hmm.
9: Well, um, I don't want to repeat that, that was a really good um, response. Uh, the, but I think on the resilience question, the, the you, you said that we often talk about and we talk more about the nexus and the humanitarian development divide and what are the mm-hmm. things that we need to do than what is actually the operational work that occurs that overcomes that divide. Uh, and it is about the funding much of it is how donors fund agencies to operate is within the divide. Right. And it's not to overcome the divide. And, but there's also a, an operational challenge right. there as well. That uh, there's certain tools that operators have on both sides of the scale that we need to recognize. We need more nimbleness right. in how we perform as the response um, evolves over time. And that is a challenge that I would, and, and I'm no longer in the chair, so I can say this, that we, <laughs> as a community of operators, have not embraced. Yeah. Um, and so there's work to do in that area. On, on the, the question of, uh, I, I, I will say, on the, the question of culture, um, and Mark alluded to this, when we talk to, um, Non-state actors about access, Uh, the an understanding of how our policies and our requirements and our our policies and our regulations and 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 our Security Council resolutions and et cetera, uh, how they are how they embrace or should embrace the culture of those where we are working and how we communicate those policies should be in a manner that supports the, the, a recognition of the culture of the, of the actors on the ground mm-hmm. is often not present. We talk in our terms, not in the language in terms of those we serve. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a problem we need to overcome. As a community of actors, um, and I would say you're right. We don't have anthropologists on our mm-hmm. staffs that help us address those challenges in those types, in that language, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and that is a, an opportunity for further dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, the the The, the question, we, we've talked about the question of data and, 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 and evidence, and no, that does not change behavior, but the importance of moving beyond anecdotal data to actually evidence that is supported by uh, the collection of real-time data uh, over time, and not just spot collection of data cannot be overstated. Mm-hmm. And it may not change the dialogue or today, but it is, it is truly <laughs> necessary to building the case for how we operate over time. These are hard questions that no one conversation is going to resolve. And so our continued uh, collection and accumulation of data to support ongoing conversations is how we will achieve the change that's mm-hmm. necessary. Mm-hmm. All right, great. And final thoughts?
6: I just wanted to underscore uh, much of what has been said, especially what Erthrin, uh has articulated in terms of the data. Uh, those who want to act with impunity are going to act with impunity but those who want to find solutions um, need the data mm-hmm. and will utilize the data in their decision making. Yes, data can be used as decision avoidance. Right. I need more information. I'm not ready to make a decision. But more often than not, I think it, can, it, it, is, it is absolutely essential to the way that we function within our communities within the U.S. government and across communities. So this is a very, very important recommendation. And I hope that we'll find a way forward out of this report. And thank you. Thank you. That's my final thought. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Thank Thank you. So before we break for coffee, I have a couple of quick announcements. One is, as as we break for coffee, there are gonna be walls that come down that start to separate our three panel breakouts. So I suggest you gather your things and leave this room. Um, Raise your hand if you remembered to bring your business cards today. Not that many, shame on you. Okay, even if you didn't wanna raise your hand, I encourage you during this break, but especially during the long lunch that we have today, there's a lot of really great knowledge sitting out here too. So, use your business card, share a few today. Use me as a reason for having to do that. Remember for the panels today, we have over here to your far left, we have cybersecurity on this side. This middle panel will be for Yemen. This is for the breakouts that happen in 10 minutes. And over here to your far left, um, no, sorry, to your far right will be Ebola, the Ebola outbreak in DRC. One other note on the back of your programs is the Wi Fi password. You probably already saw that as well as emergency exits. If there's any issues today, I'm your securities control officer and the exits are this door right here. Now, before we break, I want to give a huge applause to two distinct groups. First of all, to our task force members that like each other so much they can't stop talking. Which is all right, great. sorry, sorry, no, sorry, sorry. Um, Yes, great. take a moment to recognize our AV team, at least CJ I see back there. I don't know if I see Travis around. There's a lot to put together in an event like this, but from the videos to the live webcast, we have thousands watching online. Thank you for watching us, but let's give a huge round of applause to our AV and our event staff. <laughs> Great. Enjoy your coffee break. Panels will start in about 10 minutes.